Good morning. It is so wonderful to see your faces here this morning. Please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. So our apologies. We were informed uh, throughout the week that some did not get the email about the iced out church yesterday or uh, last week. And so we apologize for that. If you're not getting those emails, please see our dear brother Grant and he will make sure that you get added to that list. Uh, so that doesn't happen. But folks, we are just so grateful for the service of Levites this morning as we worshiped. Levites were worshipers that put their face toward heaven to sing and that usher us in with them. So we thank our worship team for their love for Jesus. Give us clean hands and a pure heart, the psalmist declares. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we desire to see God this morning. We desire to meet with Him through His Word, with His people, and by His Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, long last, we come upon the fourth and the final installment in our series, Count the Cost, which will wrap up the eighth chapter of Mark. And I pray it has been a challenge and a blessing to HHBC. We've spent the last month looking at the cost of discipleship as described by Jesus. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it look like? What does Jesus require of me? What's the fruit of a true believer? And today we come upon the somewhat uncomfortable but, unnecess- but necessary task of looking at the consequences that accompany not being that true disciple. Saints, here's where you get the real benefit of being an expository congregation. Knowing what the next verse is, your pastor does not get off the hook. I couldn't if I tried. If someone is cherry-picking around Scripture, this is not a text that is likely to be covered. It doesn't tickle any ears. The sheep will love it, and the goats will despise it. But it is good and necessary food. It's nutrition that we require, so we must not despise it. You know, some refer to the last section of Mark that's comprised our series as the closest thing to an altar call that Jesus gave in his ministry. You know, unlike the tactics of some preachers and evangelists today that manipulate and that cajole and that play on people's emotions with with dim lights and with soft music, asking people to raise a hand or walk an aisle, and then having the audacity to declare that person saved by such an action. Jesus does none of those things. He bids those within the sound of his voice to come after me, to deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Indeed, for what? will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's no emotional manipulation in Jesus' altar call, is there? But a call to sober calculation. Do not run blindly or impulsively toward me, but sit down and count the cost of this journey. For most, the cost will be far more than they're willing to bear. And it has always been so. Jesus would have started out in his ministry with a few hundred following him. And as he keeps teaching, he's down to 70. As he keeps on convicting and preaching and teaching, now he's down to 12. Now he's down to 12. 
Few will be willing when it comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few will find it. But broad is the way that leads to destruction. And we'll recall that our series comprising this last part of Mark 8 is bathed in, and it's given so much added color by Jesus' caution in Luke 14, verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Are you interested in following Jesus? Come pick up the instrument of your own death, your cross, and follow me on a death march. What will we suffer for Christ? That's what our cross is. It's a pain or it's a wound that we suffer for the testimony of the gospel in our lives. Now, how severe that cross will be is set by the Lord. He has placed you at the time and place in history that you are. If it be only a a loss of a relationship or loss of a job or jeering or mocking, can we not bear that gladly? This is a question and a challenge that must be given by our Savior for those who would come after him. Jesus promises us in his word that in this world we will have trouble. But take heart, because he's overcome the world. Trouble comes our way as believers. We can count on it. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And as Christians, let's just be honest. We're shocked every time it actually happens, aren't we? Even more common, we, we, we look at the strife that happens in our life or the pain that comes from our testimony. We look at the trouble that Jesus says will come from naming my name and we think that God is punishing us for something. No, we're commanded to sit down now and count the cost because trouble will come. And the most effective and fiercest soldiers on the battlefield are those who are already committed to death. They don't seek to save their own life. They don't hold back for personal safety. They charge. They charge. In his book, book, One Crowded Hour, Tim Bowden, he describes a remarkable exchange that happened in Borneo in 1964. There were these Nepalese fighters that were known as Gurkhas. And they were asked if they would be willing to jump from airplanes into combat against the Indonesians. Now, the Gurkhas clearly didn't understand what was involved, but they, they bravely said that they would do it, asking only that the plane would fly slowly over a swampy area and no higher than 100 feet. And when they were told that the parachutes would not have time to open at that height, the Gurkhas replied, oh, you didn't mention parachutes before. Self-preservation. Whatever that may mean is not even in the equation. That's the mindset of a disciple. I'm no longer considering myself first. In fact, I'm third. First God, then others, then self. And as I was thinking on these levels of priority, I couldn't help but draw parallels to theological convictions that we all talk about so much at HHBC. I remember when Dr. Moeller, he wrote an article about theological triage. Many in here know it. He broke different theological topics into primary, secondary, and tertiary matters. 
Now, primary doctrines are ones that we must hold to, that we must agree on. Things like the Trinity, the virgin birth, justification by faith, the authority of Scripture, the humanity, and the deity of Jesus. We hold to these with both hands, clinging for dear life, and we will die on this hill. And many have. Many have, literally. Those are first. We're jumping out of the plane with no parachute, if need be, on the primaries. Now, secondary issues would be something like maybe modes of baptism, infants, etc. These are issues that fellow believers can, can disagree on, but it may make fellowshipping in that church maybe difficult for some. And finally are the tertiary issues, our third-level triage that comes last. And these are doctrines over which Christians may disagree and yet still remain in close fellowship. Even within local congregations, things like eschatology, etc., they're fun to talk about, but we hold these doctrines with an open hand. And that's where our parallel lies so beautifully with our call to discipleship. First God, then others, then self. He, we hold God with a clenched fist, don't we? He is primary. And secondly, we hold others in high regard. We care deeply for their well-being. We love and we cherish them. And finally comes self. We hold self with an open hand. That's where Jesus wants to put us as a disciple, to hold our plans and our ambitions and our comforts with an open hand, free to be snatched away as the Lord sees fit. Lose your life for his sake and for the gospel's sake. Yes, we have a new master in Christ, and we are slaves Modern translations of Scripture have softened that word to bondservant, to be less offensive to the modern ear, but that's not what Scripture calls us. We are slaves of Christ, Paul says. Who better to toil under with our cross? It is a light yoke. It is an easy burden compared to those who slave under the taskmaster of sin. And yet this command that Jesus gives in verse 34 to come after me, to deny himself, and to take up his cross and follow me, was, this was so odd. This was so strange to the listening ear that Jesus goes on in verse 35, 36, and finally today in verse 37 to give us an explanation for such a devastating gospel call. We must hear the insanity that this must have sounded like to the listening audience. Because the cross is so beautiful to us, not so for this audience. And we must keep this in mind as we read, because the same principle is going to persist in our text today. Not only did verse 34 sound horrendous to these people, but now the first explanation that Jesus gives in verse 35 is a complete paradox. It's counterintuitive. It's a contradiction. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Well, logic would state if I give something away, I don't have it anymore. I don't have it anymore. And yet we saw two lives in view back in verse 35 in part two of our series. First was a life that, need, that needs to be rescued. And second, a life that needs to be lost. First, a life that needs to be saved and a life that needs to be abandoned. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that an exchange needs to be made. And Jesus is speaking on two levels here. He's speaking in the eternal and he's speaking in the temporal. It is our eternal life that we seek to save. That's what matters. Our life in the here and now is a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Paul tells us in Philippians that he suffered the loss 
of all things, and he counts them as rubbish that he might gain Christ. Think of the greatest earthly blessing that you know. Your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren. How much you love them and you cherish them. They pale in comparison to knowing Christ. To spending eternity with Him. We hold our life here on this earth with an open hand. We hold our blessings with an open hand. It's a lesson that the Lord will drill into His disciples at any cost. I know children are often considered our dearest possession, our greatest blessing. And I'm reminded of the Puritan theologian John Owen. Many of his works still in publication today. He was rivaled in intellect only by perhaps Jonathan Edwards. To read his works is to swim in the depths and the riches of knowing God. But God must break a man or a woman before they are useful. God doesn't use untamed stallions. John Owen lost 10 of his 11 children. Not in one tragic event, but constantly. One after the other. Can you even imagine? If God is going to use John Owen how he did, in mighty, mighty ways, Christ must be precious to him. Above all else, the world must grow strangely dim. John Owen must join with Paul in declaring the gain of all things as loss in light of knowing and possessing Christ. I'll have you know that I share that in fear and trembling. What do I have hold of that Christ is going to break off that I might be used in service to my king? Only God knows. That's the cost of discipleship. Will you bear it? Will you bear it? What will be required of us? What will our faith cost us? There will be a price exacted. Indeed, what value is a faith that in the end costs us nothing? Finally, part three of our series, verse 36 and 37, was further explanation by Jesus for this devastating gospel call. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Of course, this was a rhetorical question, right? Because the answer is nothing. Nothing. I could possess all the wealth in all the world round. I could lay on a bed of diamonds and I would have profited nothing. I could not give all the wealth in all the world in all the time in exchange for my soul. It is precious. You know, as many of you know, I love to share my faith. And what we find in today's world is less of a hostility toward the gospel and something far worse apathy. Apathy. They don't care. They don't seem to care about their eternity. They have no care for their soul. The very prize that Jesus says we could not exchange the world for. One line of questioning for people who are apathetic toward the things of God is to ask them if they would donate just one of their eyes to medical research for $1 million. At this point, some say yes, and some say no way. But now ask them, would you donate both of your eyes? For $20 million. What do you think they say? Not a chance. $50 million. Come on. The banker is right here. He will cut you a check for $50 million for both of your eyes. You're going to say, no way, aren't you? Why? Because your eyes are precious to you. You value and you treasure your eyes. But what does Jesus call the eyes? They're just the window into the soul. Matthew 6. 
They're just the window. These people would not take $50 million for just the window into their soul, yet they put their soul itself in terrible peril. They have no care for it. We are saturated in a society with a simple message. Accumulate unto yourself. You deserve it. Keep accumulating. Build bigger, build better. Our entire culture is dedicated to this very thing. The world and everything in it wants us to love it. They are competing for our affection, whatever it happens to be. We have your God replacement of choice waiting. If your heart can desire it, we can make it. We can make it. But what does it profit you? The world system that is built around idolatry and accumulation is a spirit of Antichrist. We saw in part three how these are irreconcilable worldviews. We have repeated every Sunday in this series that we cannot hold Christ in one hand and the world in the other. It's a fool's errand. In the end, you will wind up with neither. We either lose our life and gain Christ or we lose both. And yes, we call this pursuit and desire of accumulation as not only idolatry, but yes, as a spirit of Antichrist. Most were shocked last week to hear us tell of an interview with a top warlock in the church of Satan. An interview that's readily available online to watch. He was asked if he could summarize the Satanic Bible in one sentence. What would it be? And as you recall, he replied without hesitation, enjoy life in the here and now. That's the core of Satanism. Not animal sacrifice or every Hollywood embellished scene you can think of. No, enjoy life in the here and now. Heap unto yourself pleasures. That is the self-described core and synopsis of Satanism. So yes, to desire to gain the whole world, to be consumed with its pursuits and its pleasures and its desires will be fatal to the soul. If you're a child of God, he's not going to share you. He's not going to share you. Affections must be fought. The cost of discipleship means continually evaluating what in our life is vying for and competing for our highest affection. What in our life keeps creeping up trying to dethrone God in our life? John Calvin famously wrote that our heart is a factory of idols. We wake up in the morning, the factory machines turn on, and our heart starts cranking them out. But all of these idols must be deemed worthless to be a disciple of Christ. One of the costs for discipleship is to crush the idols that our hearts keep producing. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will he give in exchange for his soul? A disciple of Christ has a value system that has been realigned. And Jesus' words here are foreign speech to the world and its system. It really makes no sense. It runs contrary to every fiber in our society. To eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the world's cry. And that's a lie. You don't die. You live on. Our soul is eternal. What makes you a person, what makes you, you, is created for eternity. The only question is where that eternity will be spent. As we sit down to soberly cost the count of discipleship, commanded by Jesus to take up our cross and follow him, we have no room in our hearts, beloved, for split affections and love for the world. And what that looks like is different for every person. 
James in his epistle tells us that we're all drawn away by our own lusts. But I pray that through this series that the Holy Spirit has been stirring and convicting us. And today as we finish this series, this call to discipleship, these explanations by Jesus, we're really left with the starkest of warnings. And it seems fitting of our Lord, given the very solemn call that he's just made to those that would step to the line. This final verse is hard medicine, beloved. You'll find that the Jesus of Scripture and the Joel Osteens of the world have very little in common. So with that, let's look at our final verse. Mark 8, verse 38. Mark 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord, it seems that you have set us up in your gospel to continually need to cry out for soft hearts. Lord, to continue need, continually need to cry out for, for ears to hear and eyes to see. Because Lord, we cannot process these things. Lord, this high call of discipleship we cannot do on our own. Lord, this requires the work of the Holy Spirit. This requires a new heart. This requires a new life. This requires being born again to do. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would abide to your word this morning. Help us to hear. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, many are familiar with the names of some of the biggest reformers in our history, like Martin Luther, etc., and of course, all demonstrated immense courage in the face of certain harm. But one of the lesser-known reformers, almost a forerunner to the reformers, was a pastor by the name of Jan Hus. And he pastored in Prague around the year 1415. Jan Hus was deeply impacted by the work of Wycliffe and had such an impact on later reformers that Martin Luther actually referred to himself as a Hussite after reading the works of Jan Hus. Jan was committed to the gospel. He preached the true gospel of justification by faith alone, of the need for repentance. And for his message, Jan Hus was sentenced to be burned at the stake. Now, Jan's last name, Hus, in Czech means goose. And he would actually refer to himself as the goose. And ever true to form upon his sentencing to death by being burned at the stake, he proudly proclaimed, you are about to cook a goose. He was not ashamed. As the flames engulfed his body, he was heard praying Psalm 25, Oh my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Jan's greatest fear was that he might be found ashamed of his master. Death, even a horrible death, was a distant third in the mind of this disciple. No doubt it's texts like ours today that could have been running through great reform, this great reformer's mind as he was led off to the stake. Let us see this morning what reformers like Jan Hus saw. Looking back to our text here, verse 38. Let us not be too hasty to miss our first word here. One of my favorite words. For, as a reminder, look down in your Bibles. Look at verse 35. First word. For, 36, 4, 37, and 38. For. 
right? These are dangling explanations that are attached to the previous one. This gospel call in verse 34 at the beginning of our series that made no sense to the crowd, right? We get verses 35, 36, 37, 38 hanging on each other to explain this call of Jesus. How many have ever played with a toy called Jacob's Ladder when you were growing up? Huh? You take one block at the top, right? And all the rest fall down connected to each other. All right, that's the format of this text. We hold verse 34 and down fall the rest. So here we have our last and final four. Our final explanation as to why if anyone wishes to come after Christ, he must deny himself, take up their cross and follow him. Final explanation, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Pause there. Saints, we're going to have to go knee-deep in the culture here to understand what Jesus is saying saying here. For most of us in our culture, in 21st century America, it causes us to read this wrongly. Now, I can almost guarantee that when we hear the phrase, being ashamed of Jesus and his words, our American mind immediately ran to every time we failed in our boldness to maybe speak up for Christ. Right? Every time we should have opened our mouth to speak the truth, but our heart failed us. Weak evangelism. If I'm ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of me. That's what the Bible says. Well, not to take you off the hook from the conviction of the Holy Spirit in that area, but that's not what Jesus is saying when he speaks of being ashamed of him. We have to understand the culture here. Ancient Israel was known as an honor-shame culture. And it was defined through a patron through patron-client relationships. Almost all societies in the ancient world function on the societal categories of honor and shame. You may have heard the term saving face before, right? That's where this comes from. One of my former professors, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, he wrote about this concept of honor and shame, writing, quote, in honor-shame societies, honor is like currency, that gives people status and power, much like money does in modern Western societies. Honor is granted according to what the society values. Conversely, one receives shame by not conforming to the established standards of good and bad. Shame is not the same thing in our modern sense of personal guilt, but is a recognizable social value that determines one's success in society, close quote. So to say, for example, I'm the son of so-and-so, right? That's a great honor. Ultimately, what you are worth in an honor-shame society is determined by what you as an individual emulate. What qualities do you exude and behaviors that are valued by that collective society? If you have honor, you have currency, right? You have street cred. You're not held, if you don't, you're held in shame. If you are ashamed, meaning you are ashamed and you are held ashamed. Do we see the difference here? So Jesus is not talking about a sense of inner guilt when you didn't speak up for Jesus at the water cooler when he knows that you should have. This is a positional shame. So in order to understand positional shame, hang with me here, we have to understand the patron-client relationship that I just mentioned. The honor-shame culture and the patron-client relationship were joined at the hip in ancient Israel. Most people in ancient Israel were very poor. 
So the economic structure basically had the top 0.0001% that had all the wealth and the rest were extremely poor. There was no such thing as a middle class in ancient Israel. There were no social safety nets. There was no upward economic mobility. You were either very, very elite or you were very, very poor. And the rich were obviously the rulers, right? They were called the patrons. And everything flowed from their hands to the clients below them. They would give those below them the employment that they needed, the land, the grain, sometimes even social advancement. But it was completely at the will of the patron. Apart from the patron, the client could really do nothing. So this was a hierarchical system of complete dependency. And in exchange for that, in exchange for that employment and for that land and for the food, the client was expected to loudly and publicly express his thanks and its praise that were bestowed upon him by who? By his patron. You see where this is going? You see where this is going? So the job of the client in the client-patron relationship was to make the name of the patron famous. It was to increase the reputation and the honor of the patron for all that he had done for you. Blessings flowed down and honor and praise went up. If you are ashamed or if shame was upon you, it means you have no patron. You have no one. You have no position. That's what it means to be ashamed here. It's a positional shame. You have no patron. You're not the client of a benevolent king or a landowner. So knowing that now, do we see what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus talking about a believer that chickens out at a witnessing opportunity? Not at all. That's not what he's saying. No, a believer has position. You are in Christ. You are his. Christ is your patron. You are his client, as it were. The one who is ashamed has no patron. These are those who are outside of Christ. These are unbelievers. Jesus is speaking in verse 38 about those who do not know him, who are not recipients of his gifts, who do not live as a client does to make his name famous and to increase the glory and the reputation that is lauded upon the patron. They are ashamed. A client lives a life that exists in a state of continual gratefulness and honor to their all-benevolent master. They would have nothing without him. They are fully dependent creatures. And so we are. And so we are. If you are ashamed of him, you do not identify with him. You are not positionally able to receive the goodness that flows from the patron. Now, understanding this social and cultural dynamic sure changes our reading of this verse, doesn't it? Big time. Back to our text. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words... What are you not receiving from the patron here, as it were? You're not receiving him, or you're not receiving his words. Well, who is me? Me is Jesus. What are his words? The gospel. Paul tells us in Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I am not ashamed. I don't live in shame. You do not re- if you do not receive my words, you do not receive me. You reject me to your shame. To reject the word is to reject the word giver. Because in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. 
and the Word was God. The Word of God made incarnate. You cannot separate God from His Word. Say, well, Pastor, I'm not much for all that Bible reading, but I sure do love Jesus. Well, not as much as you might think. God does not separate Himself from His Word, nor can we. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, where and when, back to our text, in this adulterous and sinful generation. Well, here Jesus is going after the religious elite once again. It's an epic slam. You think you're holy, that you're preserving God's laws, and that you're preserving His ways, but you're a miserable wretch. Your generation is sinful and adulterous. But we're Israel. We're God's chosen people. We're better and we're separate from everyone else. And Jesus says, yes, yes, you are. And you've made her into a harlot. You are idolaters. Your entire rabbinic system is a legalistic mess of idolatry. You live in unbelief of me. You are ashamed of me because you are a sinful and adulterous generation. You will not see, so you cannot see. You cannot be my disciple. And if you are not my disciple, what is the result? I'm going to read the last part of our text as one. The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Wow, there's a lot to see there. Well, big picture here first. When we just read that last part, what came into your mind? When the Son of Man comes, coming in glory with his Father and the holy angels, what are most of us thinking about right now? You're probably envisioning the second coming. That's our natural reading of that, isn't it? It's our natural reading. And in some extended sense, we could say, okay, but question, would the second coming of Christ been the understanding of the first century Jew hearing this? Of course not. They wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. Forget a second coming. We're still waiting for the first coming. So as hard as it can be sometimes for us, we cannot bring our 21st century reading into our Bible. So what did a first century Jew hear when Jesus said this? Well, our first clue is how Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. Our hearers' minds are not going to go to the second coming. They're making a beeline for Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This passage describes Daniel's vision of a son of man who is seen coming. He's being presented before the throne of God where he's given universal and eternal sovereignty over all nations. This scene takes place in heaven where we see the presence of the Father and of angels. We're in the angelic court where God is on his throne surrounded by the cherubim and the seraphim. And its focus is on the enthronement of the Son of Man to rule over the earth. So the ear of the hearer has Jesus connecting himself to this Old Testament prophecy. He's saying, I'm God. I'm going to be high and lifted up. I am the ultimate judge. What you do with me on this earth will determine what I do with you on that day. Because it is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. You will either come before the Bema seat of Christ for welcome and reward, or you will forcibly bow the knee before the great white throne judgment. If you are ashamed of me, you have no part of me. I have no part of you. 
If my words cause you shame, if you do not embrace them publicly and willingly and enthusiastically, you have no part of me. Adrian Rogers once said, quote, you're not going to slip into heaven as a secret disciple. He hung naked on a cross for you, close quote. Yes, Jesus is speaking about unbelievers in this passage. Yes, he is speaking about them, but he is also speaking to us. He is speaking to his disciples in this scene who love him and who have confessed him. And we see embedded in Jesus' exhortation is a warning for those who name Christ, who identify with his suffering and death. Beloved, the underlying question for us The undercurrent for the confessed believer is what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Proverbs tells us that the fear of man brings a snare. J.C. Ryle lamented, quote, there are thousands of men who would face a lion or storm a beach if duty called them and fear nothing and yet would be ashamed of being thought religious and would not dare to avow that they desired to please Christ rather than man. Wonderful indeed is the power of ridicule. Marvelous is the bondage in which men live to the opinion of the world. Close quote. We've taken up our cross, beloved. We're on our death march. What heed do we give to the heckling crowd? None. We give it none. You know, earlier in our series, some may recall A.W. Tozer when he was asked what it means to take up your cross. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? He said three things. Number one, a man who is crucified is facing only one way. Number two, a man who is crucified is not going back. He said goodbye. And number three, he has no further plans of his own. No further split affections, beloved. No more fence sitting. No more playing footsie with the world. You're facing only one way, disciple. You're not going back. You've said goodbye. Your plans are no longer your own. That's the cost of discipleship. Count the cost. If we're not, we are not holding the world in one hand and Christ in the other. This world and what it has are not our reward. And we must stop trying to make it so. If the world is our reward, then the world is our patron. They're our patron. And we are not a client of Christ, but of the world and of its passing thrills. Beloved, a client may have only one patron. We must choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Count the cost. As we close, there was a young African man some time ago who was martyred terribly in Zimbabwe for his confession of Christ. And on him, he had a notebook that was later found. And inside of it was written the following, quote, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My presence makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and I'm done with low living, 
Sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, or first, or recognized, or praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I lean in his presence, walk by patience, and uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. The road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. But my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, and prayed up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till everyone knows, work till he stops me, and when he comes for his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me because my banner will have been clear. That's the call of discipleship, beloved. Those are the words of a disciple who has counted the cost. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are in desperate need of you. Lord, to do a work in our hearts. Lord, this is an arrow that needs to find its mark in each individual heart. Lord, I don't know the needs of everyone here, but you do. Lord, you know where our affections are split. You know what has held us back from being the disciple that you've called us to be. Heavenly Father, we ask that these words would go down deep, that we would carry them with us, that they would keep us straight and true, Lord, in the days ahead. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.